Trust in God. Why? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That's why we trust in God. Because He is. What does it mean that God is sovereign? One of those great questions in theology. He's the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority. Yep. He is the ultimate authority. He has authority um, over all. And that includes the creation. Uh, and all of all of our, as creatures, observation of him, he is the ultimate authority. And in that authority, he has uh, the right, as rightful owner of creation, to execute his will. That he can decree what will happen, and it will happen. That his will ultimately cannot be thwarted. <coughs> and so we understand that. How does that... Uh, if we look at, at Daniel and, and the first part is really setting up uh, the clash of the kingdoms or the war of the worlds. Um, what are the two kingdoms that are in, in conflict here? This is an easy question. Heaven and earth? Kingdom of light. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness? Not the kingdom of God? in the kingdom of the world that there is a, a way that seems right to a man the end thereof is death that would be the kingdom of the world and that there is a way that is right that God declares and narrow is the the path that leads to to that kingdom but that's the, the path that leads to life that there is a so you have the clash of, of life and death, light and dark, uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. And that this first section of Daniel is written to the world. It's, used, it's written in a language that they could understand in the day that it was written. Um, and it's a message to the world. So what do we, what's that message? If we looked at chapter 2, what would be the overarching uh, message in chapter 2? So chapter 2 is when King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. And uh, it really upsets him, so he calls all the wise guys in and says, tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation. They said, well, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, 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 you don't get it. I want to know that what you tell me is true, so tell me the dream first, and then, then I'll know that what you're saying is true. And, of course, nobody can do it, so he gets, gets angry, which is his way, and he says, I'm going to rip you limb from limb, and, uh, and your families too. And then Daniel comes in and presents the, the dream, not because Daniel's uh, presenting himself as a wise guy, but because he's presenting himself as a spokesman for God, that God has given him the dream and uh, the interpretation as well to give to Nebuchadnezzar because this was an important message for the world. Right? So what was that message? It has to do with sovereignty. God is sovereign over the events of history. God is so I call it sovereign over the epics. So when I, you know, I, I think on three by five cards, this is what I wrote. Only God controls history, and only he reveals what it holds. So when we understand uh, prophecy as revelation about the events of history, 
That's, that's God's revelation. He reveals more than just the events of history. He reveals himself. Because the events of history are for a purpose. So that's the way God is. He's purposeful. So then we get to chapter 3. God is sovereign over the epics of time. We get to chapter 3, and, and the story there is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, even though at the end of chapter 2, he has a, a moment where his mind is changed, and he recognizes that there is a, a great God of the Hebrews, and that that God should at least hold a place among his gods. Uh, when he gets to chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar is still pretty full of himself, and uh, so he builds a statue in, out of pure gold, and he puts that on the edge of the plain of Dura, which is a, a big flat stretch, so that you can see this thing from a long ways away. And uh, he commands that everybody, when the, the band strikes the, the right note, that everybody should bow down and worship that idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come along and they get called before the king because they don't bow down. And uh, they come before the king and they say, you know, we don't need to make a defense on our behalf um, because our God can deliver us from your hand. He can deliver us from the fiery furnace which you promised. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down because that's not where our heart is at. Our heart is set after the true God. And you are not that one. And the story is, King Nebuchadnezzar gets really torped again. He uh, just commands that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than normal, and that the guys that go to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, the fire so hot it consumes them as they're throwing them in, and yet they go into the furnace and are unharmed. And in fact, a fourth one appears with them in the midst of the fire, and the king again is caught off guard. It's, you know, it's like, what's going on here? Come on out. They come out, they don't even smell of smoke. Right? And the king again makes a proclamation about the God of these, of these boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, young men, actually. They're not boys at this point. And that this God is truly a God to be worshipped. And uh, but he goes on being king. So what's the <clears throat> what's the message from chapter three in Daniel? There's no other god like this god. There is no other god like this god because this god is sovereign over life and death. And he can cancel the king's decree. <laughs> he can cancel the king's decree. He can cause the king to change his decree, to change his mind. So, you see that God is sovereign over the epics of history, that God is sovereign over the events of people's lives, life and death, and that which we decree as our will, God can trump that. So we get to chapter 4, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, still full of himself, um, has another dream, and this dream is about how he's been appointed uh, a great king, and that that appointment is for the blessing of many, many peoples and many nations, and that he is uh, the one that provides uh, fruitfulness and all of the kind of activities that people need in order to be whole and healthy, and, uh, but in the midst of his kingdom, it gets cut down, he gets cut down, 
and he's not completely destroyed, but God's going to teach him who really is the king. In fact, uh, if you look at the first part of Daniel, the, the main uh, theme is stated in chapter 4, verse 17. It says, uh, that when the angel comes and talks about the cutting down of the tree, it says, this sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know, so this is to the world, the living may know, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. What he's saying is that the governments of men are placed there by God for the uh, care and uh, blessing of humanity. That governments and administrations are formed to help people. Right? That that's God's desire. He, he created not just the stuff of, that we understand, the dirt and the, uh, the water and all of the different elements that we uh, understand as, as physical creation, but he also created the social orders and governments that rule. And that he appoints people to places within that social order to rule as not true kings, but delegate kings for the blessing of God's people. And Nebuchadnezzar misunderstood. He thought that this was all his doing, right? And God had to humble him. So what's the, uh, the message from chapter 4? Pretty much gave it to you. The question is, who is the king? And the king is God. God rules over the kingship of man. No man is greater worthy in God's economy. That we are placed here um, for his purpose and not our own. So we see these messages of sovereignty coming. That God is sovereign over the epics of history. That he's sovereign over um, the lives of men. That he's sovereign over the governments and administrations of men. And we got to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is the story of uh, Belshazzar. And he is the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, this is the point where somebody can ask me the question about who the queen mother was. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Belshazzar, um, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he uh, is also full of himself. He didn't evidently learn from his grandfather. And at this time of his reign, that he is uh, taken in, as a co-regent with his father, uh, Nabonidus, there's the Persian Empire is in the process of expansion. And they're taking over lands. In fact, they're surrounding Babylon and uh, are ready to lay siege to the great city of Babylon. And Belshazzar, in the midst of that, is holding a party for heads of state, um, everybody of influence. And he wants them to know that he is the great king. So he brings in the trappings from the temple of the Jews, the, the uh, gold chalices and other things that were taken out of the, uh, out of the temple when Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had sacked it. And he uses that as instruments in the party. He does that because... 
He wants to show that this God, Yahweh, is not a God. That he is the king. Belshazzar. And that uh, these countries should align with him so that they can overcome the Persian threat. And in the midst of that, a hand appears and writes on the wall. And it writes that um, he has been evaluated and found wanting. And that the result of that is that his kingdom is going to come to an end. And Daniel is called to present this message to him. And, and Daniel gives it with no, no uh, um, almost no compassion. I can't imagine Daniel as a, as a non-compassionate person. But he doesn't uh, present it with opportunity for repentance. And Belshazzar falls. So what's, what's the message there? I mean, that very night, when this message is delivered, and Belshazzar thinks that he is in an impenetrable fortress, the, uh, the Medes and the Persians come in on a riverbed, They've diverted the water in order to, to come into the city. And they come in and conquer and kill Belshazzar that very very night. So what's the message of chapter 5? He is. God is sovereign that he has all authority over all of his kingdom and creation. He delegates by his authority, by his will, and ordains the times and places of humanity. That is, he's sovereign over history. But each person is responsible for the choices they make and will be judged accordingly. That's uh, interesting to Nebuchadnezzar for what all he did. And, you know, we're not many graphs, yet he came back to his authority. Mm-hmm. And he basically did the same thing, says, I'm, I'm the greatest. Yep. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm the greatest. So he says, I'm the greatest. And yet, you know, right after what was revealed to him, he was writing on the wall. I mean, that's the end of him right there. Yeah. So, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar lived for a while, but he didn't. Nebuchadnezzar was given given a chance. Right. When you look at the, the progression of Nebuchadnezzar as a person, so remember, Nebuchadnezzar was a conquering king. So he came in as, as a warrior king, uh, one who um, actually led campaigns. And when he took uh, the throne as the, the chief sovereign, he understood uh, both the administrative aspect of sovereignty as well as the, uh, the conquering uh, side of the Babylonian Empire. So in that sense, he was very ruthless. He was a ruthless warrior. And he understood how to uh, defeat and oppress people. And what you see is a almost a softening of Nebuchadnezzar as he goes through. First he softens towards these captives that he's taken, and he, he appoints them into high places. Part of that's strategic. But part of it's probably he, he ends up liking these guys. Right? Um, and you see as he moves through, he actually gets to this point where when he thinks that this is all his doing, he stands on his roof and he looks out over the, the beautiful city that he's created. That's what his words are. I've created this city and this is all for my my uh, my goodness, my blessing, uh, not for the blessing of the nations. Um, at that moment, he's 
struck down. He's humble. <clears throat> and he comes back from his humility after seven years, and he repents. He says, you know, there is one that's higher than me. And he makes that statement. Um, when you look at uh, verse 34 in Daniel chapter 4, it says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is first person, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. So he raised his eyes towards heaven. That's a statement of repentance. He was making a change in the way that he was uh, viewing reality. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar, this is his statement, he recognized who the God of the Jews was. Now, we know that this was a polytheistic nation. We don't know that he actually gave up his polytheism. This is probably as close as you see in this account of someone actually converting to a belief, a true belief in, in this one God, Yahweh. And uh, what we would understand as that process of repentance that leads to salvation. But we don't know that that's actually what happened. Because he lived for a time after this, although his kingdom was diminished. We know that from history. And so that when uh, his, uh, his daughter married into uh, another family of, uh, I don't want to say royalty, but they were significant in stature economically. And Nabonidus became king, and then his son Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, came along. A lot of this lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned didn't get transferred, didn't, get, didn't go from father to, to daughter to grandson. And so that Belshazzar, he really thought he was the king. But he was different. In that when Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the king, he, his heart was able to be talked to by God. Now, it took a, a serious, God took him to the woodshed, right? He humbled him for seven years. That's significant, significant activity. And so we look at, well, what does God do in our lives? We think sometimes we'd like our relatives to be taken to the woodshed. <laughs> and we realize that well maybe God wants to take us to the woodshed just by his mercy he's staying his hand at the moment hoping that we'll, we'll learn some other way and that's the lesson in chapter 5 that there is a judgment it is certain that there is only one sovereign and we have a place in his kingdom by his uh, good pleasure right? <laughs> I think one of the things I get out of that story and message is uh, at that particular time, the Ten Commandments were known, but they weren't necessarily adopted and followed and agreed upon. Right. You know, they all thought, oh, these are really, you know, nice guidelines to live by. Yes. But what's the power and the strength and the truth behind them? And this was a lesson of the number one, very first uh, commandment of all, you shall have no gods before me. Right. And... Uh, he was trying to place himself in that role. He was a sort of 
image or idol of a god. Right. And he's not. Right. And that's that's what got the the Jewish people into this position was idolatry. And um, what you see is that there's there's a message, even though this message is to the world and to those that would not, we wouldn't call them saved or under the umbrella of, uh, of Christian faith. And I'm reading Christianity into this story, so I want, I want to tell you that. There's not Christianity in this story, although we're going to see the announcement of the king, the Messiah, the true king. And there's a declaration of who God is that's very plain that the whole world should see and know. Um, but there's also a message to those that come to believe, and that that message is, is that God's law is real. And that um, the first commandment is what? You'll have no other gods before you. Right? And the second one is you not make any idols. Right? And the third one is, anybody know the third commandment? This is the test. <laughs> don't take God's name in vain. And what that means is you don't empty God of his person. That, and we do this all the time. We have a token God that I, I call him like the, the cosmic Coke machine. You know, we put in our quarters and we make our selection. And by golly, we better see that can come shooting down the slot and deliver what I ordered um, because I put in my quarters and I deserve it. Um, and so what we do is we empty God of His person, who He is. We make Him a token. We. Um, so it's a much deeper uh, teaching. But that's that what we're seeing here. So to the believer, that's supposed to pop off the page. That we have a personal responsibility understanding God's law. That's what chapter 6 is going to reveal for us. You know? It seems to me that with that the commandment, you, know, that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We tend to connect that with, oh, I hit my thumb with a hammer and I said something I shouldn't. <laughs> right. Uh-uh. Right. If I try to present myself to the world as a Christian, and then I behave in a manner that is notably unchristian, yep. I am taking the name of God in vain. Yep. If I try to turn God into the cosmic coke machine, yep. where whom I can manipulate and all the rest, I'm doing the same thing. I, I, God is who He is. That's right. And I can't make Him do anything on my schedule. <coughs> uh, I can ask, but I can't demand. That, that's right. God will not be manipulated. That's right. God is God, and we're not. That we are the creature, and He is the Creator, and that there is a, a relationship there. And it's a desirable relationship. It's a relationship of life. But never in that relationship do we become God. And what happens is, is that the world tells you that you are God. Right? And that's what we fight against. And it's very, very, very subtle. Um, if, if we saw it coming, we would step out of the way. It's like, what, what reasonable person, knowing who God is, would allow him to become nothing. And that's what that word means. Vanity, if you look at the, 
the old uh, Ecclesiastes in the, the old King James, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What that means is emptiness. Everything's empty. And people that get caught up in the world, at some point they come to that conclusion. They either decide that they're going to enjoy their kingship for the day and eat, drink, and be merry because there is no more meaning other than that, or they become despondent because they recognize there is no there is no value or meaning in the kingdom of the world. It's all empty. Emptiness. And what happens is, is when we do that to God, that's, a, that's an incredible violation of his person. And that it actually hurts us. So we understand that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the expression of God, is the expression of his will for his kingdom. And that parts of that will include decree, that which will be, because that's the way it is. He made it that way. And part of that will is invitation. We understand that as permissive. That he invites us to join him and enter into that. What we're going to see in chapter 6 is that God is sovereign over the epics of history, over the lives of men, over the governments and administrations of men, and that he brings judgment, and that he is sovereign over the law of men, and that his law trumps man's law. And this is an important thing to remember, because this is important as to how we live. You know, when I was driving down the road yesterday, I'll give you this little story, and then we'll jump into chapter 6. And uh, my daughter was commenting about my speed. <laughs> and uh, actually, she wasn't so much commenting about my speed being excessive, uh, as much as that my rate of slowing was not satisfactory according to her desire. And because I was approaching a car in front of me, and there was a trash truck on the right, and people were crossing the double yellow line to get around the trash truck, right? And this is on the Battleground Highway, so you got lots of traffic. And, um, and I was looking, so the way I drive, I drive forwards and backwards and to the side. So I'm constantly looking. I just learned this when I was young. I got this radar, so I'm looking in my mirror, who's going to come up my tailpipe? And what's going to happen if I slow down? And what the impact of that is? And I'm looking forward to see what's the impact if somebody makes the wrong decision or what's traffic coming this way. Is it appropriate to cross the double yellow line in order to give good, good uh, space between me and the trash truck? Because that guy's going to open his door and jump out and grab the trash cans, right? So I'm thinking about what he's going to do. And I'm thinking I need to give him white breath, but I also need to pay attention to all these other things that are going on. So I crossed the double yellow line and went around him. And my daughter was like, cross the double yellow line, that's a law. And I said, the law is a guideline. <laughs> 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 so I quoted the pilot's code. Uh, and the reason I said the law of man is a guideline is because the divine law is a law to bring life. And my concern was for the life of others around me in that instant. That I wasn't crossing the double yellow line because I was in a hurry. I was crossing the double yellow line because I believed it was the safest thing to do. Now, you can argue with me about that. and Maybe if a cop would have been behind me, he would have felt differently about that. But I know what happens if you back up traffic 
on the battleground highway, people will make stupid moves. So I, I really believe that my judgment was right, and that in this instance, the law of man was a guideline. That yellow, double yellow was a guideline that is designed to preserve life when you look at it in its purest form. And that I had to make a judgment as to how that should be interpreted. That's the law of man. You don't run into this with the law of God. Right? And that God already knows all of the events around you. And when he says, this is my will, it isn't subject to my interpretation. The laws of man might be subject to my interpretation, but the laws of God are not. They're subject to his interpretation. That's what Daniel chapter 6 is about. It's above all law. Yeah. It's the 11th commandment. <laughs> so let's, let's read chapter 6. It says, It seemed good to Darius. The question is, who's Darius? You guys still didn't ask me the question. Who's it seems good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as fellows, or as follows: King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be charged. Changed. Changed. And I, I put the emphasis in the wrong place in it. So the injunction was that anyone who uh, violates this would, and this, and this law was to be in effect for 30 days, would be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked, therefore, King Darius, sign the document. That is the injunction. Now when Darius, or now when Daniel, but, uh, knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in, the, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continue, continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by, uh, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, 
who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near to the den, to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke uh, to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. <coughs> then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So what's happening in this story? Who are the characters? What's the setting? Time we got. Pardon? So this is uh, how old was Daniel at this point? Yep, he was an old guy. He had been serving uh, at the point, so he was uh, part of the captivity that occurred uh, in 605 BC. And the, uh, the Persian king conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. So that's 65 years right there. Daniel was probably about 14, 15 years old when he went into captivity. So we do the math. That says he had been 80 years old when he was brought before Belshazzar. Um, and this is sometime after that. Now, I, I mentioned that uh, at the end of 
uh, Belshazzar's reign, says in chapter 5, verse 31, that Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So there was Cyrus the Persian, who was the king of Persia, and then he was off uh, fighting battles. He was a warrior king like Nebuchadnezzar was. Um, and he was a great king, Cyrus the Persian. And he had generals. And one of his generals, uh, and in a sense a co-regent, was this one identified as Darius the Mede that actually went in to Babylon in that uh, final battle and then was appointed governor subsequently. And so even though um, Cyrus the Persian had reign over all of the kingdom of Persia, which was becoming quite extensive, this king, Darius, was over only the region that was Babylon. And he had a job then appointed by Cyrus to um, administer it correctly, such that there would be no loss. So that's Daniel's 80 years old plus at the time that he goes in to the lion's den. So you figure it's got to be a couple of years for administration to be set up and you know, you're appointing 120 satraps and, and Daniel is uh, one of the three commissioners over them and that things are, he's again distinguishing himself in such a way that the new administration, the new uh, king recognizes, hey, this Daniel, he's good for business. Let's promote him. Let's make him the prime minister. So Daniel probably was somewhere around 85 when this happened. Think about that. You're 85 years old. Maybe the lions left him alone because there was nothing but skin and bone. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But he was, he was a, a, an elderly gentleman. And he had, uh, again, won the hearts and minds of those that he served under by serving well. So that really bugged those that wanted to promote themselves in the kingdom of the world. And possibly, why, why does Daniel name? Well, because there would be, so there would be no law. So these guys, he's made a name for himself. It, I think it's not only their promotion. I think it's the corruption. They're not going to be able to be corrupt and right. take money because he's not going to go along with it. Right. So... He's such a good guy. Let's turn into skinny two shoes and just see, you know, what happens. And yep. So, and, and the Medes and the Persians, the Persian Empire, was distinguished uh, by uh, its administration of law. They brought in uh, a legal system that was uh, binding such that even the king himself could not defy the law, right? We think that the law is the supreme, uh, supreme authority, and yet God's law, which is what? It's the Ten Commandments in its barest form, right? That you'll have no other God before me, that you won't have any idols, that you won't uh, empty my person, um, that you will keep the Sabbath, right? And then there are the laws uh, for the benefit of men. You know, take care of your parents, don't kill people, don't steal, don't lie, you know, don't don't want your neighbor's Maserati, 
all these different things, right, that are designed to help us focus on what real truth is, who the real king is, and to bless others. And Daniel holds that fast. It, if you look at the main objection to Daniel, and then you look at the way business is done in our various capitals, whether it be Vancouver or Olympia or Washington, D.C., he's unpopular for an excellent reason, but it's a reason that really hasn't changed much. If you're, if you're honest and you are preventing people from getting their graft, right. uh, they're not going to like you. That's right. And Daniel was willing to be unlike to do the right thing. Amen. And in fact, he didn't change at all. So Daniel's definitely not the uh, protagonist in this story because he remains a constant. He again is the foil. He exemplifies the character of, uh, of God and what God's righteousness looks like. And in this sense, you also see Daniel as a type. So when we look at this story, um, we see that Daniel goes into the lion's den, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the furnace. Right? And in the midst of the furnace, and in the midst of the lion's den, God is there with him. And actually delivers them. And we say that this is a type because, um, in, in many ways, Daniel is a type of Christ. Because Christ went into the tomb. But the difference is that Christ actually died. He suffered on our behalf. But the result is the same. God delivers. And so Daniel is not Christ, but he's, for, you know, he's pointing the direction to Christ. And we see that this is what ultimately... God's law is all about. It's about bringing life. It's about delivering us. So when I go back to Psalm 63, 62, and we were reading, this is a story about oppression in Psalm 62. Um, it says in, in Psalm 62, verse 3, How long will you assail a man how, how, that you may murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. This is the story of the satraps and this legal system. And it's you know the word graft was used. It's corruption, uh, where people will do anything to get that position, to get that wealth. Because that's the only thing that that kingdom can offer. And how much of that can you take with you? You can't take the position and you can't take the wealth. Right? But what you can do is you can cling to the one who is the author of life. And that's what this, this psalm is about. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. And we get to the end and we hear 
the end of this psalm, it says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. It doesn't belong in this kingdom of the world. It belongs to God. True power. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. So what did Daniel declare when he came out? He declared that, says the Daniel was, uh, the king Darius said, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. He was found innocent before God. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So, we understand that, that God is sovereign. We see that. That part of God's sovereignty is the bringing of judgment. And that we have a personal responsibility before God. We saw that in chapter 5. And here you see what it looks like. You see what the deliverance of God looks like again. In a sense, this is a, a, a shadow of what you see in chapter 3. It's the same kind of story about being delivered in the situation that God has put you in, but that he is the sovereign, that he is the one that brings life. And Daniel recognizes that God brings life because of who he is, that he is uh, aligned in accord with God's law, God's declaration of his will. And we need to understand that, that the law of God is the expression of his will. So, in a sense, the law is God. Just like life is God. God is more than that. We understand our God is transcendent and imminent. And he is also able to completely state himself in truth uh, and in what we would call perfection and holiness. Right? That's what the law is. It's a declaration. It's declarative rather than prescriptive. It's declaring who God is and his righteousness. And that's what Daniel aligned himself with. So this is why Daniel's character pops off the page. What do you see of Daniel's character? Never changes. Never changes, but what, what is it that's not changing? Faithfulness, no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. He didn't hide either. He had the windows wide open. He had the windows wide open. He was doing as he had done previously. He's a man of integrity. He wasn't going to change because the situation around him was changing or because it would cost him his life. Right? Daniel knew what was in the document. That's what it says here. Like, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, then he entered his house. And he continued doing what he had been doing. Praying. Even though he knew that that would that law of man would lead to his death. 
that's what it would be. I mean, you, that's what you can assume. If you get thrown into the lion's den, you can assume you're going to get gobbled up and, and eaten. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't deliver you from that. But Daniel wasn't going to change, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't going to change. That's why Daniel's character is popping off the page here. And when he, um, when he is released from the lion's den, he, the first thing he says is that this is all about God. This isn't about me. It isn't because I wasn't a tasty morsel and I had cayenne pepper all over my skin and the lion didn't want to lick me. Um, it was because God shut the mouth of the lion. The lion was hungry, clearly, because the people that went in after got torn apart. So the lions were hungry, and Daniel sat there, and the angel came and delivered him in the midst of that. <clears throat> and then it says, Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. That's the editorial comment. The message to us, so this is to the world, and the message to us in the world is to trust in your God. What we're going to see is that there's a reason for you to trust in your God. Not just because you can be delivered from a lion's den or you can be delivered from a fiery furnace. And what's interesting there is that they had to go into the furnace and he had to go into the lion's den. And um, in 15 minutes, I have to go into the Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> you know, Nobody wants to do some of the things that they have to do, but God has called us to the place that we're in, and we need to be faithful in that. Um, in the midst of that, God may or may not deliver us such that we are unharmed in this world. We're certainly secure in His hands in eternity, but what's coming next is He's going to show us what that eternity looks like. What the real king looks like. And chapter 7, which is written to the world, introduces the Son of Man. So, you'll find chapter 7, verse 13, 14, key to understanding the message to the world. God is sovereign, and this sovereign is the Son of Man. This is what it looks like. Let's go ahead and, and close here. Um, unless there are questions. Any questions real quick? If not, we'll close. Scott? Wasn't it unusual for Daniel to move through the three kings? Didn't they generally kill the advisors who were hungry for So I don't think Daniel's yeah. longevity is quite Yeah, so, so not only was he uh, a long-lived guy uh, and, and saw a lot, uh, saw several transitions of administration, um, it actually may have worked in his favor that he was uh, taken captive and that he was always seen as less than everybody else, right? Even though he ultimately provided great service uh, to whatever administration he was part of, he was viewed as uh, a slave, a captive. Isn't this that Judean that was brought in captive back by your grandfather? Isn't this the one that, you know, 
which is the accusation they made against him. How, how can you promote this guy? You know, he's a Judean. So in many ways, we will be um, defamed. We will be humbled by the world because of who we serve and who we align ourselves with. But that does not diminish God's use, using us uh, in a way that brings blessing. So think about that as you look at our community and the disintegration of our world around us. Um, I say the disintegration. There was a time when people thought this was a Christian nation because it was predominantly Christians, not because of a religious practice in the nation, but because of the people that made it up. That's significantly changed. And so we now find ourselves in a position where you know, laws are passed that we disagree with and there are going to be times when it's appropriate to choose what God says is right over what the world says is right that's why I say the laws of men are guidelines but their origin is ultimately good God intended that we would have laws to guide us that you know the double yellow line is there for a reason and, uh, and but we need to use judgment in understanding what uh, the heart of God is and, and how we bring life into our community. And I would encourage that. So I'm not saying disregard human law because it's guidelines. What I'm saying is look at what the, what the heart of that is and follow that. That we're intended to bring life and that's why God put us here. Um, but don't be surprised when you find yourself being called a you know, a Christian uh, in a diminutive way. So, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study uh, the life of Daniel and see him as both an exemplar of character, the kind of character that you desire in us, and faithfulness, and yet we know that Daniel really struggled with this, as we're going to find out in the chapters ahead, that uh, there are many things that just kept him up at night, and uh, caused him to become physically ill in trying to understand that which is going on around him. Lord, um, we, as we draw near to you, we share that. We share your heartbreak over the, the condition of the world. And Lord, we also want to um, share in bringing life. As you have brought life, um, we thank you that you have um, entrusted us as your church with your mission. To the world and Lord we, we don't take that lightly. Lord we ask for your guidance as we and wisdom as we uh, struggle through the, the pages of scripture. We ask that your Holy Spirit enlighten our minds and, and touch our hearts. Lord uh, we thank you so much for your provision as we uh, go out from here. Um, thank you that you've given us a, a great degree of freedom and provision in this world. Lord help us to be responsible and good stewards of that and to bless others. Lord, uh, we thank you for your protection, that we know that uh, you are with us to our final breath, and that you defend us, and that we need no greater defense than you, ultimately. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for your service to us, and your coming and dying on the cross. And Lord, we just ask that you remind us of that, uh, moment by moment, that you are with us, that you are alive. Um, and bring us life. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray and ask that you be with Pastor Bob this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.